In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Good morning. So I wanted James Earl Jones, but he wasn't available to be able to read the first words in the beginning. Probably my favorite baritone voice out there. Uh, But have you ever really considered what actually the voice of God might've actually sounded like? Uh, That's a thought that I've, I've had, like what would it do to me to actually hear the voice of God? What would be my posture after hearing that? Uh, and what would be my, my, my heart's cry when I actually get to hear that voice and, and then see face to face? That's something yet to come. I'm not in a rush to get there. I do wanna live longer on this earth, but what a special thing it's going to be to hear the voice of God. And with his voice, he spoke and things came to be. And that too is something that is difficult for my finite mind to be able to fully grasp an infinite God that as soon as he spoke, things came into existence. What a beautiful expectation that we have to be able to hear the voice of God, the very voice that created all the parts of the universe, including the earth that we are on. If I was to begin to put into context your life, where should I begin? Many of you find your birth in dates that go back into the 40s and 50s, maybe even before the 40s, and and then you get into the 60s and 70s when the Gen Xers start coming along, and then the millennials, the Gen Zers, and I have no idea what we're calling those born in the last dozen years or so, But here's the thing, every one of us were born into a context of a family line that had a story that was already going, that also affects your story, and it also affects how you're raised, and it begins to show up to other people that there's certain things about you that says, there's more to this than what you've just communicated. And there are tips that we give by our behaviors, our language, the way we state things, and the way we see the world. All points to something historical in your life. And if you're engaging at all, like some of you, you're not great engagers relationally. You would you're, you're, you're be very content to come into church, leave the church, and just get a hello. Because that's a, that would be the most comfortable experience for you on, on Sunday morning. And, and that's okay. There are some of you God's created that way. But it's not healthy if that's where it always goes. We are meant to have relationship. We're meant to engage one another and getting context helps us know how to interrelate, right? So when I was in Spain a few weeks ago in, in the month of July, my wife and I were over there and we got to meet a lot of beautiful people there. But there was one gentleman that I seemed to hit it off with right away. He was about six foot three-ish, six foot four, 
built what we would say he was jacked. If you don't know what jacked means, ask somebody that's younger than you. <laughs> or maybe you just need to watch some younger shows or something. I don't know. But he was jacked, and, and there was the, he had this kind of cool smile. Like, he, when he had a serious face, it was very intimidating. But when he would smile, it was kind of like, oh, There's a lot more to this guy than just the sheer physical intimidation. And so over time, we began to communicate while we were there. And and we would use interpreters because I don't know Spanish. And and so we would have an interpreter. And then finally, he showed me, download this app. And so we started communicating with an app. And he was getting very frustrated because the app didn't always get it right and so on. But we we were getting there. But as he was saying things, I began to realize, wait, there is... There's something about his story that's very unique among the people we're interacting with there in Spain. As time began to fill out for the first couple days, discovered that he is not a Spaniard. He is from Romania. And he had come to Romania escaping uh, some very difficult dynamics within the area that he lived. He also began to share tidbits that helped me know that he, sought in, he fought in paramilitary and had served in places that we now know there is war raging. While he didn't go into details, I know he had served in Ukraine. And he had done so as part of a group from Romania. And there were things there that I could tell he wasn't ready to share. But it shaped him. And as we were talking about things going on in his history, his family, and how, you know, he became a believer, and then uh, what he wanted his children to know. The things that kept coming in and dripping through his conversation is that he, he wanted to go home. He missed Romania. And his hope was is that after working in a glass factory there in Spain, that over time, he could be able to bring his family back to Romania. He felt Still, even though he'd been in, in Spain for over 15 years, he had learned the language, he, his heart was still back there, still wanting home. You know, it says in Peter, in 1 Peter, that, that we are to be like aliens and strangers here on this earth. Yes. Chapter 2, 1 Peter says, this is not our home. Home is something we look forward to and and that day when we actually get to meet our creator and hear that voice and see his face without fear of destruction. And when we get there, so much understanding will come just by the revelation of God himself. That's something we long for, but it's not now. I felt that as I was with him. But the longing of that was a context that I had to grow and understand and appreciate the journey that brought him to Spain. And so as people interact with you and I, do they start picking up on the clues and the hints that there's something greater in you than what meets the eye? That there's a storyline and a context that causes them to ask more questions of you to get and understand why maybe you're not fully satisfied with life here on earth that there's some kind of longing that that goes beyond. And that perhaps that longing leads to conversations about your faith. And as you're talking with them, you realize they have zero context for your faith. They've never read the Bible. They've never had anything taught to them. They've heard the name Jesus because of Christmas or perhaps Easter. 
but they don't know anything about the story and how it came about. So when we say things of, you must be saved, from what? And why? And well, you know, and then you say, well, you gotta receive Jesus. Well, okay, I know about that name, but why him? Well, he died on the cross for you. Well, why would he do that? Well, it was necessary for his blood to cover your sins. Well, what are sins? Well, that's sins are things that we fall short of a holy God. Who is God? Do you get my point? We're in a post-Christian society where what I just did describes the majority of those we interact with throughout the week. They do not understand the context of faith, especially the Christian faith. And so if we understand that, how would we ever help them come into understanding of that unless we give some origins, we give some context to a greater story? You see, when you just say you must be saved, you have just chosen to go right into the middle of a book that is a long narrative of which they've never read and you've just thoroughly confused them as to why they need to be saved. Now, it's fine if you go there if your intent is to draw them back to the beginning to begin to ask those questions for context. But let me ask you first, since I'm gonna assume there's some level of context for all of you being here that you would come out on a Sunday morning to hear some guy talk from what we know is the Bible, that there's some level of context for most of you here. So let me ask you some rhetorical questions. What if we had no context to Jesus other than his historical name. What if that's all what we had? Would we understand then what it means to be saved? No. Would we understand sin? No. Would we have any context to God's character or what God's character would desire from us? No. Would we consider the story of a man named Jesus who chose to die by a horrific death on a cross where he got mutilated beyond recognition, to have chosen that, would you consider that person to be mentally stable? To be honest, if you really think about it, that's a ridiculous story that somebody would choose that. But we have context, and we fail to realize that context helps us. Then we have to ask ourselves, well, how can we then discover the character of God and the creative work of God and the redemptive work of God if you only dealt with the middle of the book? We would be lacking much. In fact, when we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospels that tell the story of Jesus, you and I probably cannot fully appreciate that as we're reading them, how much we are actually drawing upon our knowledge of Genesis. How much we're drawing upon our knowledge of the rest of the books of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. In the Greek, known as the Pentateuch. In the Hebrew, it's known as the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. How much we draw upon that to give context and understanding to when we read the Gospels, we can't probably fully appreciate. Think about this. 
would we fully not understand that God is a relational God and that that God who is a creative God, the creator God, who is a relational God, created beings, human beings, in his image to have relationship with him? Would we be able to understand that if we did not have Genesis? No, if we're being honest. So we understand that God's relational. He's the creator and we're created in his image and we're created to have a relationship with him. But it's also true that in Genesis, it's there that we understand that there's a revelation of God's holiness. God is holy, he is perfect. And in order to have a relationship with a completely holy God, only that which is completely holy can be in his presence. We get that. From Genesis. So therefore, we know that, well, none of us would pass that test of being perfectly holy, set apart, to be able to be in the presence of God and not be rejected. But that's revelation, right? It reveals God's character and it reveals ours. We get that from this context. And as a result, if God is a relational God, and he is a holy God expecting holiness in order to have a relationship with them, and we know we can't do that, then we're ultimately going to fail, then we understand that why there needs to be a redemptive story. And God is the one who does that. And that is also initiated and described beginning in Genesis. So if you take Genesis Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy out of our context, then we have no full understanding of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And our faith would all of a sudden be difficult, nearly impossible to discern and understand and to receive. So what do we do? We need to study we need to understand the original context. In fact, I would say more than ever before, those who are image bearers of God, that are now followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to bring this gospel to those around us, our oikos, that's the biblical Greek term to describe our sphere of influence, those we do life with, that they're dependent and understanding the gospel upon your ability to give the gospel in its context. In a post-Christian society, that is true more than ever. So, is this fact that somebody who has zero context to scripture can be helped to understand the gospel through Genesis? And the answer is yes, and let me tell you a quick story. A year and a half ago, in January of 22, a young man was sitting in my living room on the couch. We had met earlier, a couple weeks earlier, and realized that there was some questions that could be answered. So I invited him to my house. He begins by telling the story that he had grown up never having read the Bible, having zero context to it whatsoever. He knew nothing. And as society has become more and more absent of God, he began to become very concerned for his children. And he was realizing that there's a moral compass that he's desiring and he's looking around and he said, the only place I saw any kind of a moral compass were Christians. So he decided, well, I need to buy a Bible. So he Googled, what's the best Bible? 
That's an interesting one, right? Because we know how many translations there are and so on. But he ended up buying a very solid translation, a thick one that had a lot of helps in it. And, and I was like, this is awesome. This is good. You bought the right Bible. So then he starts reading. He says, I began in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he says, I fell in love with the character of Jesus. I'm all in on this. I love this. Then he got to the book of Acts and he got thoroughly confused. So he decided, he goes, you know, I kind of started in the middle. Maybe I should go back. Now keep in mind, zero biblical context. Nobody's guiding him. Just from afar, he's observed there's some kind of moral compass in those who call themselves Christian. So he buys a Bible. Somehow he gets to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I don't know the answer to that one, but he gets there. Then he goes into Acts and he gets confused. And then the logic says, maybe I need to start at the beginning. And he goes to the beginning. And he's telling me this. I'm just listening. And he says, I go to Genesis and the light bulbs come on. He got Jesus. He got Jesus. In a couple weeks, we're gonna hear his story. And I'm excited for you to hear that. But after that experience, of which, by the way, he gave his life to Jesus on my couch that day. Pretty cool. And it's not lost upon me, his name is Adam. <laughs> You'll get to meet Adam here soon. But here's the point. I realized in that moment, I had heard it to be true. I've always known. The Bible is a meta-narrative. It's, it's, it's not just sections of books and you just understand it and try to divide it and separate it from its whole. No, it is meant to be Genesis to Revelation together. In its whole, we get God. And as a result, we get the gospel. And as a result of getting the gospel, we see and understand why Jesus and so today, we are going to go into the biblical text. We are gonna explain why Genesis is more important other than maybe I've already sold you on it. But I want Jesus to sell you on why we need to go there. So we're gonna go to the book of Luke, chapter 24. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are coming up right now. They will provide you a Bible. And uh, just put your hand up. If you do not own a Bible, this Bible can be yours free. Uh, it's a gift from us. Having said that, we also use a Bible app called uh, Version Bible app, Y-O-U. And uh, if, you go, if you have that app and download it, just go to the events tab. You'll find LEFC there, tap on that, and you'll get the scriptures we're using today and some of the outline. Having said that, we're gonna be in Luke chapter 24, and the context is this. It's actually the day of the resurrection. Jesus had died on Friday, and he was in the tomb, and this is the third day and he has already appeared to some of the women that had gone to leave some spices and some aromas and things for what is usually given as for a dead body. They had gone to the tomb that day. They saw that it was open. They were horrified by that. And an angel appears to them. And they were told that he is risen. He is no longer there. Go back and tell the disciples. So they go back and tell the disciples. Peter goes and runs with John towards the tomb. Peter outruns John, goes into the tomb and sees that it is empty. So they go back, confirming the empty tomb story back to the disciples. But here's the thing. You would think, because Jesus had said over and over and over, I'm going to Jerusalem to die, but I will raise again on the third day. He had been honest, transparent about that. So you would think that a celebration's about to begin, but instead, there was doubt. There was doubt. 
And the story had captivated this group that was larger than just the 12. There were many others that were part of it. And there were two of them that left that gathering and that report from Peter, bewildered by what they had seen. And they decided to take a walk. They're about two hours into their walk. And that's where we're going to pick it up in verse 13. It says, now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still and their faces were downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem that does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, Jesus asked. Well, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. So you can see there, their faces were downcast and they were already stating with their mouths, this isn't the story we expected, all right? So they had hoped something different. So continuing on, and what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. Verse 22, in addition, some of the women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but did not find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Jesus said to them, how foolish you are and how slow you are to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses, the Torah, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And beginning with that Torah and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if they were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and gave thanks, broke it and gave it to them. It was at that moment that their eyes were open and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us along the road and opened up the scriptures to us? So they got up and they returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told them what had happened on the way and how Jesus had reckon, was recognized by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened and thinking that they had seen a ghost. And, they said, and he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do, you, why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. Is it I myself? Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. 
When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and they took it and ate it in their, in their presence. And he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And I'm going to send you what my father has promised. But stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. How would you have liked to have been there in that moment? Now, there's some things here that's just human, right? All these people that were in this room had heard from the women that had gone to the tomb. They came back and they're like, huh, that's interesting. And they might have been able to recall that Jesus had said, I'm going to rise from the dead on the third day. Because even Pilate said, uh, or even the rulers went to Pilate saying, can we guard the tomb? Because he claims he's gonna rise from the dead on the third day. So they need to guard it. So even the Romans and the rulers had put him to death. The, the Pharisees themselves knew that this was a possibility because it had been proclaimed. But somehow those who were following Jesus were not there yet. Peter goes, sees the empty tomb, not there yet. These two men are on the road, having heard all this, not there yet. Jesus shows up. They're so overcome with doubt, they can't even see Jesus. Like, they hear him, they can look at him, but their mind is not even capable of receiving. That's the resurrected Lord. So what's going on? They had the same access to scriptures that the Pharisees did. And yet all of them, with the scriptures that they had had from Genesis to Malachi, somehow, going beyond that, had written the story beyond that in a way that didn't line up with what they expected. Okay, well, that's not uncommon. We're doing the same. Because the only part that we're left with right now to keep writing the story is Jesus says he's coming again. And so we study the scriptures, and we know he's coming again. We have enough scripture to have some good clues as to how that coming's gonna look. But let me tell you, if each of us were to write down what we think's gonna happen, we might not be in agreement. And that's because it hasn't been fulfilled yet. But we're all going to see it for what it is because we'll have known the scriptures, and we'll see, oh, that's how it's going to play out. For these disciples, for the Pharisees, who had had all these texts, they could not see through all the parts that talks about a king who is coming to also see that he was also going to be the sacrificial lamb. They just couldn't see it, even though it's right there blatantly in scripture. They could not link the two. So what happens then is that grief and anxiety starts becoming deep-rooted. I mean, after all, they saw him scourged. They saw him tortured. They saw him die in the most horrific way. It is difficult for them to comprehend that just three days later, he would be standing there before him as a fully healthy, healed, resurrected Lord. That's incomprehensible. But their grief continued because 
They had a lack of understanding or a limited understanding of scripture. So grief and anxiety often can be, not always, but often can be the result of a poor understanding of scripture. And that's what was happening to them. They could not grasp that there was going to be a resurrected Lord after such a scourging. But it happened. So you see that here. And then you have to also understand that as Jesus is talking with them, he understands that they've written the story incorrectly. So what does he do? He makes sure that they don't write the story incorrect, but get the story accurately. So to do that, you don't work from the middle, you work from the beginning. So it says, you know, there in verse 27, that he goes back to Moses and the prophets And in verse 44, we also see that he utilized the Psalms. So, Jesus is helping them understand, these two men walking to Emmaus, helping them understand that the Messiah must suffer. He must die, and then he will rise again, and then all things are accomplished. So, with that being said, you need to, this is going to be on the screen, but it says this, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news about Jesus, is rooted in a narrative that needs the whole of scripture to be understood and believed in a post-Christian society. All right, so it's really important to understand this. The gospel of Jesus Christ that you and I get to carry into our oikos, our relational worlds, into our, our nation and into the nations beyond, we need to give them the context of the whole. When missionaries go into new tribes that have never had the Bible, they don't start in Matthew. They start in Genesis. They get the understanding of the creator God because they can see creation and they can connect the dots to that. And then they can find out that the creator God is a relational God and that he created them to have a relationship with him. But the problem is, is that same God is also holy and we are not. And he expects that to have the relationship with him. And we're like, well, then who can ever have a relationship with God? Well, God knew that answer to that question is no one unless I do the work for you. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is rooted in that storyline that we need people to understand in order for them to receive the gospel. And it was also true in a pre-Christian society and in a Christian society that even then, if we don't use the Holy Scripture, we start redefining the Messiah incorrectly. So Jesus himself provides the clarity to why he had to die and his mission by going back to the beginning. And so he gave this clarity of himself, his death, and his mission by going to Moses, going to the prophets, and going to the Psalms. Now, my question is, (laughs) which ones? He was on a journey, he was walking, so we know there was about a two-hour walk, so we don't know where along the road to Emmaus that Jesus caught up with them. So he got there, and then they also finished walking, you know, talking at a table, so we don't know what length of time Jesus had, but my curiosity is which of the prophets, because we know the prophets are basically after the wisdom literature of Scripture, and it's all those books after that that are the minor and major prophets. It's like, which ones did he use? Which ones of Genesis did he use? And of the Psalms, there are so many Psalms that describe the Messiah. So which of the Psalms did he use? When I consider Genesis alone, I think of chapter three, verse 15. That's the first messianic statement in all of scripture. And we're gonna teach that in a couple weeks. But in Genesis three fifteen, he says, the offspring of the woman will come and crush the head of the snake. 
The snake's head has just been crushed. What about chapter 28 of Genesis or chapter 49 of Genesis or some of the other parts that just described as holiness and then the opportunity for reconciliation and redemption? So many things in Genesis could have been shared by Jesus that day. But I'm pretty confident that I could make a case that Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11 was shared by Jesus when he said this, for the life of a creature is in the blood and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. In other words, in order for that reconciliation between a holy God and a depraved human being to ever be reconciled, it requires blood. And you have to also know what kind of blood. It requires something of perfection because it's gonna be holy blood that covers. That's why perfect lambs were used for temporal sacrifices. But again, we know that from the books of the Torah. So when somebody's like, well, why would Jesus ever need to die on a cross? It's because blood is necessary to pay for sin. So Jesus would have had to have taken them back to remind them of what they've already known. For us, we're talking to people that had no clue about it. Job even speaks of my redeemer lives in Job chapter 19. Jonah speaks that the message isn't just for the Jews. It's gonna go to other countries and nations of the world. Isaiah speaks of it when he says that there is a God who is so holy that makes a way for us to encounter him. And you can read that in Isaiah chapter six, chapter eight, and chapter nine. But I'm pretty confident again that Jesus would remind these two walkers to Emmaus. Remember what it says in Isaiah 53? When he says, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we consider him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. To me, if I'm Jesus, I'm ending there. Nothing else needed to be said. Because it draws in why he needed to do what he did. Because remember, their faces were downcast. Have you not heard, stranger, what's happened in Jerusalem the last three days? Were you the only one that's not heard? And Jesus just smiled. He's like, you guys are such idiots. Do you not know who you're walking with right now? I mean, this is such a cool moment that Jesus is about to uncover. But when he goes to unpack it all so they can understand it, he is going to use verses like this to give them context to remind them of what they've already known. But I will also say this, in verse 32, their testimony was, as Jesus was unpacking the scripture, their hearts began to what? Burn. So, okay, hear me in this. Our testimonies play a part in helping somebody be willing to hear about the gospel. When they can hear that, yes, Jesus can change your life because he's changed mine. That's really important. And that can help the mind say, you know what? There's something here. Maybe I should be open to this. But your story without scripture makes nothing burn in the heart. It says in scripture that scripture is able to go to the innermost parts of our being. It divides the most intricate parts of us. 
There is no promise in scripture where it says your words can go to the deepest parts of our being. Now, our words can cut and harm, and it can build up. But to where it begins to define things, like it says scripture can do in our hearts, it's always lacking. So when we're sharing the gospel with someone, when we're explaining Jesus, scripture is the most effective path to the heart. Please hear me in that. Scripture is the most effective path to a person's heart. And especially those who have never received it. Especially those who have never heard it. And on top of that, Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is God's tool for equipping us to share Jesus. Yes, in our oikos. Yes, in our community, to our country, and to the nations. It used to be it was just the nations that didn't know about Jesus, but now it's our own country. It's our own neighborhoods. And so all the more, Genesis to Revelation is required for context. And yes, you don't start with Genesis maybe with somebody. And you start saying, did you know in the beginning? No, we begin with God's changed our life. And that leads to questions, but then we need to be equipped. It's like, can we go on a journey together and tell this story? 2 Timothy, Paul says this to Timothy, his, his follower, the one that's going to take over the ministry when Paul leaves this earth. And he says this, so important. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of because you know those from whom you've learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for what? Scriptures are to make us wise for salvation. So without it, how can we become wise enough to, for salvation? So that through faith in Christ Jesus, we can receive that salvation. And in verse 16, it says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for what? Teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that we as the armor bearers, the message bearers of the gospel can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I am concerned that if we do not learn to master the Old Testament and understand our roots, then our effectivity in helping those who have never experienced the scriptures, never heard it before, that our ability to share with them the gospel will never make sense. You believe, I believe that all the scripture is given to us as a tool so that those who have never heard can know. Let's pray. Jesus, you knew that they needed to rewrite the story differently, so you started over. Rewalked it through with them. When somebody sees the gospel being lived out in our lives and they see Jesus as evident and they see us as an alien and stranger, that we are longing for something, some other place, just like that friend I met in Spain, they're gonna ask questions. And it wasn't until I understood the beginning in that man's life that I understand why he wants to go back to Romania. And unless I go back to the beginning, somebody's never gonna understand why I'm excited to see a God that I've never seen before. Why I'm excited for even death beyond death. Why death isn't something I fear. It's because there's a story to be told. 
So Jesus, we acknowledge you. You are the fulfillment of all that has been written. And you are the author and perfecter of our faith. So speak to our hearts, enlighten us anew. Draw us into opportunities where we can then fully understand and grasp this gospel better than before so that we can articulate it to those who need Jesus. So Jesus, I pray this in your name, your powerful name, amen. Amen. Would you join us by standing and worshiping? You was before there was light Walked across the pages of time You who made every living thing Behold it You who heard humanity's cry Left his throne to wake as a child he became like the least of us. Behold him, Jesus, Son of God, Messiah, the Lamb, the roaring lion. Oh, be still and behold him.
it will only take a generation to lead to ignorance that can cost generations to come. We know in scripture that there were generations of Israel that had forgotten who their God was. And it became generational. And then all of a sudden, you find that King Josiah finds that there's a scroll that they need to read and they discover something as if this is new. And then they, it was cutting them to the heart. If we remove Genesis through Malachi from Matthew and Revelation, it will only take a generation and no longer will the gospel be understood. That's a scary proposition. And churches, some of them, and authors have said, you know, the Old Testament's a little bit confusing, so maybe we shouldn't go there. And let me tell you, this is probably one of the more challenging series we're about to go in for me because I don't consider myself exactly proficient on all the Old Testament, but I've grown much in the last 15 years. And I've learned that without it, you can't explain Jesus. So we're committed as a church to Genesis through Revelation. If you bring your children here, we're going to teach Genesis through Revelation. If you bring your teenagers here, we're gonna teach Genesis through Revelation. If you're gonna sit in this room, you're gonna have to endure hearing from Genesis through Revelation. And we're going to teach we're going to teach it because it's not just for our benefit. It is because those who have never received the gospel that we do this. Because they need context that we have. We draw upon it regularly. They don't have that to draw upon. So we must apply ourselves. And some of the ways you can do that is we do a Sabbath reading every Saturday at nine o'clock in A1, A2, where we read the Torah and we also go into some of the prophets and then we go into the gospels. Uh, we get the opportunity to do that. We read it every week. That's one way. In your life groups, you can probably begin to take on, hey, let's do some more reading and let's ask how we can learn that God is relational. How would we explain that out of the Old Testament that God is relational? How would we explain that God is holy and that we're not? Out of, out of those first books of the Bible. How can we say the redemption story is just being written in great fulfillment even as we speak as the church grows? How can we draw upon the Torah and the prophets to explain that? These are things that are gonna be essential for our generation and the generations to come. If you'd like to talk to someone, we'll have people in the encounter room that'd be glad to pray with you, answer any questions, I'll be up front. There are elders with lanyards on that'd be glad to answer any questions. The key thing is, is we want to introduce you to Jesus and to him and his word. We're not the authority, he is. Amen? So let's go as ambassadors of this great gospel, armed with the word of God, which can cut to the deepest parts of our being so that our hearts can burn and people can understand God. You are dismissed.